You're listening to the Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever El Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, you'll hear from Melissa Lampani. Melissa grew up as a competitive gymnast before discovering climbing in college. She's climbed throughout the U.S. and really enjoys hard boulder problems. She has a deep love for rescue dogs, especially those blocky-headed pups. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. It's December 22nd, 2022. I'm Tali Kasuchi, and I'm talking with Melissa Lampani in Mill Creek, Utah, about rock climbing and dogs. So to get started, Melissa, will you uh, introduce yourself and tell me about where you were born and what it was like growing up? My name is Melissa Lampani. I was born and raised in Rochester, New York in 1975. Very hard to say that out loud. <laughs> um, yeah. Nice. What was it like growing up in Rochester? What are some of your early memories? Well, aside from being very cold uh, with a lot of lake effect snow, um, I grew up in a really large, loving Italian family. I was an only child, but I do have a lot of cousins on both sides of my family. Um, I'm still close with a lot of them, and I was very close with both sets of my grandparents, and they were all actually immigrants. So I have uh, one of my grandmothers uh, came from Scotland. The other three were Sicilian. And so I had this really interesting childhood full of food and culture and language um, with a very good sprinkling of Catholic guilt, as I say. (laughs) Um, we also owned a well-known Italian bakery and, uh, there was a very colorful cast of characters. My, uh, my dad and my uncles and my grandpa, they had this thing about hiring, you know, ex-cons and people from the neighborhood. And it was just a very diverse, colorful cast of characters, um, and a very interesting and delightful place to grow up (laughs) and be a part of that. So that was a that was a pretty interesting experience, and I would work in the bakery and you know help fold the the little dough balls, and you know the the bakers would you know have me taste test the cookies, and there was always these you know amazing pizzas coming out of the oven. So it was a, it was a pretty interesting childhood. Um, I grew up doing a lot of dance 
And then later I got into competitive gymnastics quite seriously. And that really became my life. I loved traveling and competing with my team. I really learned a lot about mental toughness and independence and discipline. Um, also, lifting up my team and being lifted, you know, like they, they lifted me up and I lifted them up. And we had these incredible experiences traveling and competing together. Um, and so that was a really big part of my childhood and adolescence. I also loved sailing. We always had sailboats and uh, we, you know, I would go out with my dad and we would sail on Lake Ontario and he would tow me behind the boat in a dinghy <laughs> or I'd bring friends along and he would tow both of us out on the dinghy and it was just really beautiful. Um, I also had a, a best friend growing up who I'm still very close with and she and I got into what I would call just the right amount of trouble. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely childhood and upbringing. Mm-hmm. What do you think, uh, drew you to gymnastics and competitive gymnastics? I was a complete spaz growing up. Um, I was very high energy kid and always flipping around and, you know, it was the eighties. There was a lot of movies about dance and movement and, you know, and I just was constantly on the move and my parents, you know, I was doing flips in the front yard with the neighbor kids and just couldn't quite hold still. (laughs) So, um, I decided, or, you know, my parents decided to try to put me into gymnastics. I had been doing acrobatics and I had been doing a lot of dance and, um, they, they wanted to help me get to a different level with that. And so I started, taking more gymnastics classes and then um, had kind of a natural aptitude for that. So uh, they encouraged me to continue with that and really focus on that. And then I joined the competitive team and that was really it. I was completely hooked. And I'm still, to this day, a lifelong insane gymnastics fan. So yeah, I've had season tickets for the University of Utah women's gymnastics team for 17 years, as long as I've lived in Utah. And I am insane for gymnastics. So what was your favorite event to do? You know, I love them all, but because I started out doing acrobatics as a kid, I really loved to compete in floor. I loved tumbling. I loved dance. So for me, that was probably my best and most favorite event, but I loved it all. Yeah. Neat. Um, what was your, um, post high school graduation? Did you stop competing after you graduated? I did. I did. And it's one of my biggest regrets in life. I wish that I had continued with it, but I started to feel like a little bit burnt out on it um, as I got into my late teens. And I just really wanted a break from it. And I regret that greatly. I really do wish that I had continued on to compete in college. Um, What I ended up doing in college, though, was returning to dance. So I kind of went full circle, um, and I did a lot of modern dance when I uh, did my first two years of schooling in Buffalo. So it was, you know, it was, in in hindsight, I wish I had continued with my gymnastics, um, but at the same time, it allowed me to return to another love that I had, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was, I guess it worked out the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, at what point did you kind of make it out west? 
I, uh, after my first two years of school in Buffalo, I just felt this draw to the West. I really, my family growing up, we were not outdoorsy. I mean, aside from sailing, but I never went hiking or camping or anything like that. I would call my family fairly indoorsy, not outdoorsy, but I had this curiosity about the mountains and about being out West. And when I was probably a junior or senior in high school, I took a trip out to Colorado to visit a a school, Colorado State. And although I didn't go there the first two years, it was always in the back of my mind as something I wanted to return to. And so I decided to transfer after my first two years of school and return out, you know, go back to my dream of being out West. And as soon as I got to Colorado, I just, I knew that that was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the mountains. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to experience, you know, all the things that the mountains had to offer because it was so different than what I grew up with. And, you know, to this day, so that was 1995, (laughs) so long ago. Um, But to this day, I just, I never get used to or tired of looking at the mountains. It just, they take my breath away every single day. Were there any other impactful experiences from your childhood or teenage, young adult years? You know, I, I thought, uh, I reflected on this because my parents did not go to college. My dad was a Vietnam vet, and when he got back from Vietnam, he went to work in our family bakery. Um, and my mom never went to college until uh, I was probably in elementary and middle school, she ended up going back and getting her associate's degree. And I think it was just a different generation. Um, And also they were from fairly blue collar type families. And so they didn't have the opportunities really to to go to college. Um, But it didn't stop them from becoming very successful. My my mom, she ended up uh, having a very, very long and storied career uh, at two public radio and television stations in New York and worked her way up to being a director after being there for, you know, more than 30 years. And I thought that was so inspiring to watch. Um, And my dad, similarly, you know, our bakery, unfortunately, burnt down when I was in junior high school. And it was a really difficult time for my family. We, um, you know, struggled financially, but my parents never let that trickle down to me. And in fact, at that time was really, I was very serious into gymnastics, which is probably one of the most expensive sports a kid could possibly be in. Um, and they never let that slip. You know, they, they worked super hard. And my dad ended up, after we lost our family bakery, uh, it was very traumatic. You know, he ended up working his way into corporate America in the baking industry, and then ended up traveling all over the country, teaching these world famous restaurants, bakeries and pizzerias on how to improve. And, and so he ended up having this really amazing career and becoming very successful, despite the fact that he didn't have a traditional pathway or college education to do that kind of thing. So I think for me, that was really impactful. And, you know, you don't really realize how, um, hard or how much sacrifice your parents make for you when you're a kid you know you just kind of take things for granted and then when you when you're older and you can reflect back on it you realize like wow they 
really worked hard for, for our family and, you know, gave up a lot so that my life could be what it was. And, you know, they never really showed that. So as I've matured, I've really grown to appreciate what they went through, you know, during those years and how successful they ended up becoming despite all of those things. Yeah. What was it like, um, losing the bakery? sounds like it was kind of a good, um, community hub food plus the food and culture coming out of there what was that like it was yeah it was devastating I remember you know there was there was this sort of complicated layer to it um whereby they found out that their insurance person had been basically embezzling all of the money that they had paid for their premiums and you know, the, the, the bakery wasn't covered, you know, the way that they thought it was. Uh, and I actually went to school with his daughter. And so it was a really difficult experience. And I remember just seeing my dad really sad and, you know, and he and his brother and his cousins trying to figure out if they could rebuild it. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really sad loss, but I think one thing that was really beautiful about it was how much support we got in the community and you know the bakery had been there for so long and people remembered growing up there and going there and getting a loaf of bread or having the bread at all the restaurants in town and you know all these things and to this day you know this is you know what feels like a hundred years later when I go back home there'll always be somebody who was like oh Lapani I remember Lapani's bakery was that your family oh my god we used to go there and you know get this I love that bread hot out of the oven. You know, it's like, so it's still there, you know, in the background and hearing, you know, how that impacted other people in the community. So, and how much they appreciated it. So it was a, it was a hard experience, but I do think it ended up propelling our family in different directions and um, maybe ultimately better directions, um, despite the, the sadness of the loss. But it is really neat to hear that it still lives on for people that remember it. (laughs) Yeah. What was it like um, making the decision to leave New York (laughs) when you've grown up with such a Italian family? (laughs) Yeah, I I would say that I was definitely the black sheep of the family to make that decision. Most people that are in my family, they stayed close to home. And, and I do envy that when I go back home and I feel like I've missed so many things with my cousins and aunts and uncles. And, you know, I, I definitely, um, I definitely kind of feel a little bit of a longing for it, but at the same time, I knew that I had to do my own thing. And I think mm, there's probably a lot of people in my family that just think I'm super weird, you know, like, Oh, you, like I tell them I'm a like a climber and they're like, "Oh, so you you want to climb Mount Everest? Like are did you climb Mount Everest?" I'm like, "No, not that kind of climber." <laughs> but, you know, they sort of think my lifestyle is weird. And I suppose to them it is. Um, but yeah, it was it was hard to leave the closeness of my family, but also it just had to happen and you know, at the end of the day, I think they all love and support me and I think even though they probably think it's a little weird they also definitely think it's cool but one thing that I love right now is for the first time in my life out west and again I've been out west since 1995 I finally have some cousins that are here Um, and so it's really fun I feel like I have this 
opportunity to, you know, build relationships with cousins that are here. And they actually share some of my interests of, you know, and love for the outdoors. So it's really fun to finally have a little piece of New York out here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is there anything else before we start talking a little bit more about your time in Colorado? No. Okay. Well, tell me about living in Colorado and it was there that you found climbing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, when I was living in Colorado, my first two years, I went to school um, and I was not a climber at that time. I was hiking and running um, and really loving the mountain lifestyle, but I hadn't yet found climbing. Um, so, so really initially it was just kind of living the, I was living in Fort Collins, which we affectionately call Fort Fun and, you know, having a good time exploring the trails and those kinds of things, but it was sort of pre-climbing. I was focused pretty heavily also on, you know, my schooling. I wanted to become um, a social worker and work with people. And so I really wanted to, you know, do well at school. I'm actually kind of glad I hadn't found climbing yet because I feel like it might have derailed my education (laughs) slightly. Um, So I was pretty focused on school and, and just beginning my sort of outdoor mountain journey. Yeah. Were you still dancing at the time too? No, I had kind of left that behind when I moved to Colorado. I I did I I did dabble a little bit here and there. You know, I would do like a drop in class here or there, but really I had kind of left that behind because I think in my mind I did sort of have this goal to become more of an outdoor athlete, um, but just hadn't quite found my path yet to do that. Why, why did you want to switch to be an out, outdoor athlete? Well, I think, you know, mostly because I could look outside and just see this beautiful environment and want, you know, just wanted to be a part of that. So, yeah. Yeah. So what, what uh, so after you graduated, that's when you yeah. stayed in town? Yeah. So I decided to stay in town and I got a job working with kids who were in uh, residential treatment and I loved it. It was a, it was a really, really great uh, first job for me. Um, And I was dating a guy. (laughs) It's a really funny story of how I found climbing. So I'll tell it to you. Um, I was dating a guy and he broke my heart. Honestly, I had gone back to New York to do a summer internship right after I graduated. And during that time, he like breaks, it breaks my heart, breaks up with me. And I go back to Colorado and I'm finally moved. I'm like finally sort of moved on from that experience. And I was about 23. I think it was 1998. My, the years blur a little bit, but, um, he, I get back to Colorado and I, and he, you know, he, he was all of a sudden having regret for having, basically broke my heart. (laughs) I thank him very much for breaking my heart at this point because really it was the right thing. It needed to happen. Um, So he said, I really want to get together and I want to talk things through with you. Um, So meet me at, um, and he describes this address and I can't remember now where it is. And if anyone listens to this that ever lived in Fort Collins, they'll remember it. But basically there was a road And where the road ended, it sort of dead ended into this 
bouldering area and the bouldering area was called the tropics and sadly it is gone uh it was like completely blown up blown to smithereens to work on the dam near horsetooth but at the time it was still there so he's like meet me at the end of this road you're gonna park your car and you're gonna walk and you know i'll just be over there and so I walk over, I, you know, I follow the directions and I was sort of dreading the whole conversation. I just didn't even want to have it. I was over him and, you know, I just want to move on with my life, but whatever. We had history. So I, I go there, I walk to the end of the road and there's this cliff and he, I'm facing the cliff. He's facing me away from the cliff. I'm facing the cliff and there's like people climbing all over this thing and He's just droning on and on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all I, I was just like, yeah, shut up. Like, what are they doing? What are those people doing? Because I want to do that. And I want to do it right now. I, I don't even care what you're saying. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. Thank you, Taylor Swift. So what are they doing? Because I want to go do that. And I want to do it right this minute. Uh, so anyway, it was, that was my introduction to rock climbing. He was there. I think he had done a Knowles class or something and got hooked on climbing. So that's why he had me meet him there. What he didn't know was how pivotal that moment was for me. Like it was, I can remember everything about that day. And after that, I think I drove immediately to the local rock gym. There, there was, this is 1998. So you know, the gym situation was not what it is now, but there was a gym in town, Inner Strength, and I drove immediately there from that faded, you know, meeting, and I signed up. Uh, I was like, sign me up. I want to do this. I want to do it right now. And uh, that was that. And I, from there, just went, I mean, all in. Like, that was the day that changed everything, and and that changed the entire course of my life. So... (laughs) Why did you, looking back, um, what do you think drew you to want to, I need to do that immediately? (laughs) I think it was, you know, the movement junkie in me. For me, um, and I know we'll talk, we're going to talk more about this, but for me, climbing has always been about movement. I know it has a different appeal for everybody. You know, for some people, it's the mental challenge for some people it's the purely physical challenge or the puzzle you know solving the puzzle piece for me it is the way my body moves when I'm climbing and it spoke to the dancer in me and it spoke to the gymnast in me and when I saw people moving over stone it was just like a different medium to do that and maybe a medium that my body could do as an adult because gymnastics you know, the, the gymnastics is changing. It's really inspiring. There's more gymnasts that are able to do gymnastics longer in life. But for the most part, it really is a sport geared for younger athletes. And so for me, it was like, I remember calling my parents that day, that, that very day. And I was like, oh, my God, I just found gymnastics for big people. <laughs> and I was like so pumped. And I was like, they even use chalk. Are you kidding me? Like, this is it. So, yeah, so I go to Inner Strength, I sign up, that was it. I, that was that was the draw. It was just the, watching this this movement, you know, people moving. How was it the first time at the gym? It was amazing. It was amazing. I loved it. I loved the way my body felt. And I remember, you know, when you just start, you're so tired immediately. Like, you can do, you know, you can do, like, 
five moves and you're like, oh my God, what's wrong with my arms? I've never felt like this before. You know, so it's obviously short lived. I couldn't, I just couldn't quit. I just couldn't stop. I mean, I was a noodle. And I remember too, in those early days, just trying so hard that like I'd go to the grocery store and I couldn't even hold the cart, you know, like the, the handle of the car was like, mom, my fingers hurt my fork. Like what, you know, and you don't know anything, right? You don't know how to, you don't know about resting. You don't know anything. You don't know what you don't know. And I was just like, climb, 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 climb. Um, so yeah, that, it, that feeling was so, so cool. I loved it. And, and I also remember, you know, those early days watching, I was really captivated by the, the women climbers and they were doing the most awesome things and they were so you know strong and they had muscles and I you know when I was a gymnast growing up I always had like I was always bicepy and shoulder like I was very muscular and I was so self-conscious of that as a teenager I hated my body I hated like you know I had a lot of dysmorphia about being strong or having muscles and um here was this place like these women and they're all super strong and they have biceps and they're doing like cool campus moves and they're lead climbing and they're and I was and it was like whoa this is this fits me like this is people look like me and I this is so cool and and yeah and so all of a sudden uh, it was also I was older and more mature at that point you know I wasn't a teenager anymore and so I you know valued my body and the what it could maybe do and that these were people that looked like me and it was awesome so yeah who were do you remember uh some of those Fort Collins women and who kind of inspired you do you remember yeah yeah for sure yeah um one of them her name is Ashley Lloyd we're still actually connected on Instagram which is really fun um and she was a really strong climber. Allie Rainey I was on the front range back at, at that time, although she didn't live in Fort Collins. But I do remember I've only done like a very small handful of comps in my life um, because really after gymnastics, I decided climbing was for me and I never wanted it to be about competition. Uh, so, but Allie Rainey, I remember was on the front range at that time and seeing her, there was this woman, Pam from Denver. She was like so strong. And then one of my early mentors at that time was a woman named Susie Quick, and she knew a lot about climbing and ropes and rope management and climbing outside, and she was a really big inspiration. Um, but I do remember, <laughs> this just makes me laugh, because this, this will date the whole discussion. Um, when I was at Inner Strength, um, oh, and Tracy Hickey, she was one of the owners of Inner Strength. She was really fun and strong and motivating and supportive as well as her husband, Mike. But, um, I do remember I, this was, there was a clipboard, a literal clipboard was how you had to sign in pen and paper. There was no digital sign in. There was no card with a barcode, you know, it was, you signed your name on paper when you got to the gym. Very funny. Um, but I remember signing in, in those early days and there was, uh, a name right above mine, Melissa Capoza. And I was like, wow, there is a, not only is there another Melissa here, there was very few women in that day, in that, you know, in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of female climbers. So there's a woman, her name is Melissa. She is apparently Italian. Like, I need to go find this woman and she's going to be my friend. And so I walked around the gym and I found Melissa Capoza and she became one of my 
absolute best friends. We're still very close. Uh, and my main climbing partner back when I was getting started. Um, and she, she had a little more experience than me, not a ton, but like enough that she could sort of mentor me and, um, could, you know, we could sort of like putts around and put up some ropes and, you know, top rope outside, or we were, you know, starting to lead a little bit. But uh, she, she was my main partner and she also had a really good head and, you know, she had led, you know, she was like not afraid to grab the rack and, you know, put up a trad climb and um, she helped me do the same. And so she, she was my number one climbing partner, but I met her in those very early days. <laughs> Um, on the because of the clipboard. <laughs> Do you remember that conversation? Oh <laughs> gosh, va- vaguely. <laughs> she might have a better recollection of it, but I think I like walked around the gym and you know, it was like I think I asked. There was probably a couple women there. It wasn't like she was the only one, but it was like, "Are you Melissa Caposa? Are you Melissa Caposa?" And then finally, I get to Melissa Caposa, and uh, and, and we just were kindred, you know, she, she was from the East coast. I was from the East coast. We were both Italian. We were both loud. We were, you know, crass and funny and yeah. And we just, that was it. You know, <laughs> she was, yeah, she, she just became one of my, my dearest friends and best climbing partners. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you remember of the Fort Collins climbing community? And then can you also tell me about the first time going outside to climb? Sure. Um, the community was pretty small, you know, it was like, like now, nowadays there are so many climbing gyms and so many opportunities for people to get into the sport. But, you know, then there was really one gym and everybody was there and there weren't that many people and there certainly weren't that many women. So, you know, it was um, it was a small community. We all knew each other. It was very supportive, and I really liked it. There wasn't really, it didn't feel like, and I'll put this in air quotes, like a scene. You know, um, I do remember, you know, traveling, and this is this is no shade to Boulder, but I do remember, maybe a little shade to Boulder. Um, I do remember going to Boulder a lot in those years and feeling a distinct difference in the way that the climbing community felt. Um, It felt much more down to earth in Fort Collins. It felt very supportive and kind and it was never, it didn't feel um, like it was number driven. It was just, it was just a really nice community. I really enjoyed it. Um, And yeah, it, it was a good, it was a great place to learn to climb and a great place to get started. And I feel so fortunate because there were some legends climbing in Fort Collins at that time. And I remember wanting to learn as much as I could. I mean, I signed up for, I was such a nerd. I mean, I signed up for everything. It was like, oh, there's this clinic on how to build anchors. Sign me up. Oh, there's a self-rescue clinic. Sign me up four times. I'll do that clinic four times. There's, oh, Colorado Mountain School. I want to take mountaineering school. I'm going to go to mountain school. It was just like whatever was available, I signed up. And one of the people I took probably the most clinics from was Craig Lubin. And he, you know, sadly has passed away, but he was and will always be a legend. And he was just beloved in Fort Collins. And I learned a lot from him and um, was, you know, I just feel so privileged that I got to do some of these clinics with him and learn from him. Um, 
But yeah, I did sign up. The, the funniest was Melissa Capoza and I signed up for Colorado Mountain School together. We're like, yeah, we're going to be Mountaineers. Yeah. <laughs> and in the end, oh my God, no, absolutely not. I am not a Mountaineer. Um, yeah, did not enjoy that. Ex- I'm so glad I did it. It was like a three-month thing where you would, like during the week, you would take a class on something. You know, and it could be something really like like orienteering. We're gonna learn orienteering, you know. So we do this sort of clinical education in like a classroom, and then that weekend there would be an you know field trip, either a full weekend or a day trip, and you'd learn, you put the skill into practice, right? So, yeah, it was. It was uh, I learned a lot of good things. I learned re- relatively quickly that I did not want to be a mountaineer. Um, I got really scared and. I got yelled at by my teacher for being scared. <laughs> and the day that we, the, the, the week or weeks that we actually learned about rock climbing, that was my, those were my weeks. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm a rock climber. Thanks for clarifying. Got it. <laughs> but I finished the class. I even have a certificate somewhere, I think. Probably in a scrapbook somewhere. <laughs> Where were you, do you remember what situation you were scared of? And then the teacher yelled at Oh, my God. I think it was, like, we were doing some 13er, probably somewhere, you know, near Vail or something. And it was really exposed. And we were walking along a very steep scree field. And it's just sliding everywhere. And I was so terrified. I, I was convinced I was just going to fall off of this mountain, you know. I mean, it was... I don't know. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but for me, it was horrible. It was so horrible. And I asked, there was, you know, other students in the class who loved mountaineering. I mean, that's why they're doing it. They want to climb mountains, right? And so I was like, well, could somebody just put me on a hip belay or something just so I feel safe, you know? So there was a guy in the class and he was super nice and he was like, yeah, no problem. He's like, "Eh, I got you. Don't worry about it. So he like ties me off and I'm like crawling up this mountain (laughs) I'm thinking I'm gonna die and the teacher comes over and I will never forget this he looks at me and he's like what goddamn movie did you see that in and he just berates me in front of the whole class and I just I'm like crying because I'm terrified you know he he was an old codger you know like just like an old curmudgeonly alpine codger and he just had no patience for scared little me clinging to this scree field on a steep you know 13,000 foot peak anyway that pretty much solidified for me I am not a mountaineer I don't want to be a mountaineer I think it's super cool that people do that stuff I can appreciate it but yeah not for me (laughs) (laughs) gonna stick to the rocks sticking to the rocks that's right Oh, so when did you go outside for the first time, and who were you with? You know, I'm trying to remember who I was with. I don't actually remember the first times. I have, like, memories of that time in general, and going up and setting up top ropes, probably with, like, maybe Susie and Melissa, and maybe Mike Hickey from, you know, there was a lot of people, like, involved in my early days, um, and we, I do remember going up to, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I forgot about this. So 
couple of places. So, well, anyway, and I don't remember what cliff it was on, but there was a climb called the Cat's Eye or Cat's Eye, and it's like a very classic front range top rope. It's probably only 30 feet tall. I mean, it's not tall. It's on one of those ridges in Fort Collins. You know, it's like, I don't even remember. And I don't even remember how hard it was. But I remember that was the penultimate goal was, mm-hmm. oh, my God, if I can top rope, like, right, top rope. Like, it was, you couldn't even lead it. You had to top rope. There's no bolts on it. But if I could top rope this, then, man, maybe I can be a real rock climber. I did eventually do it. And I don't, it was probably, like, I don't know, maybe it was 5'11", or I don't know. But it had this move in the middle, the cat's eye move. And you'd have to, like, match two little tiny fingers, and it was, Yeah. So that, those were some of the early days, like top roping there. I remember going there a lot. And I remember there was another little top rope area called Duncan's Ridge. And I remember just that's where I really learned technique. You know, it was not so much in the gym. It was outside and learning how to move on real rock um, and learning from those early top rope experiences. But I don't actually remember the very first, first time. I probably should remember that, but I don't. <laughs> Uh, at what point did you leave Fort Collins and where did you go next and why did you leave? Um, my husband and I really loved Fort Collins and I would say my formative climbing years were spent in Fort Collins. Um, and I was definitely very much into sport climbing, um, at that point in my climbing life. Uh, I loved rifle. Rifle was my bread and butter. I loved it. I was there every single weekend from spring to fall. And so making the decision to leave Colorado was difficult, but my husband and I, we weren't married yet at the time. Uh, We were starting to feel like we had kind of outgrown Colorado, like we had sort of exhausted our career options or climb, you know, it was just kind of, we were just ready for a change. And so, and we had decided about a year, we got married in 2004 And in 2003, we just decided, let's save up some money and see if, you know, after we get married, maybe we could go live on the road and and live that life. And um, so we, the last year we were in Colorado, we saved and saved and, you know, tried to live really simply so that we could figure out, you know, what to do. And and we didn't even know where we were going to go. And part of our thinking was that this road trip would ultimately help inform where we were going to end up. Um, and so we got married in the summer of 2004 and we hit the road shortly thereafter. We didn't really have a plan. I mean, we, we knew we wanted to climb as much as possible and that we would boulder and we would sport climb. We would explore all of North America, but then we didn't know what came next. There was just not really an end game to that. Um, but it was sad to leave. And I remember spending our last night in our house in Fort Collins and just you know, those mixed emotions where you're so excited for your next chapter, but you're also just sad, right? You've had all these amazing experiences and they were so formative for me as a climber. I'd lived there 10 years and, you know, built my, you know, my community there. And so it was a very bittersweet experience about leaving, but we knew, we knew it was time. It was time to do something else. Are there any formative experiences from that time period that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share or any specific climbs that really taught you something (laughs) not that I can really think of I mean 
I remember, you know, I did, I remember sending some, some projects at Horsetooth Reservoir, like bouldering projects that were so meaningful to me at the time because they were the type of things where, again, I told myself, if I can do this, then I will be a real climber. And I remember, you know, I remember doing the pinch overhang and I remember the day I did it. And I know we're going to talk probably more about some other memorable things, you know, here shortly, but that one, I seem to have this theme in my climbing life, which is epicking on top outs. It is my superpower. I'm really good at it. I'm really good at screwing up a very, uh, well, in the case of the pinch overhang, that is not an easy top out, but give me an easy top out. I will screw it up. I promise. I'll get scared. I'll freak out. I'll forget how to climb. I'll do something really hideous and hilarious. And the pinch overhang was like that. Um, and I remember there was like, you know, I had a, a posse of people and I, I was probably the only woman there that day. And I do the pinch overhang and I'm so psyched, but I am in a full on beach whale on top. And I'm like, oh, oh no, my top is off. Like it has <laughs> literally come all the way up. And if I fall and all these dudes down below catch me, like I am now topless. Like this is horrific. This is the most horrific thing I could possibly think of. So I just clawed and scraped and scraped and scraped and scraped. And I, I got it. I got up it. I did it. But I was scraped and bloodied from neck to waist for weeks. So that was a very memorable one. And I also remember doing the Punk Rock Traverse, which is a very famous V5. It seemed really sandbagged at the time. <laughs> I don't know if it was or not, but it took me years. And I finally got to put that one to rest before I left. But, you know, there were other things like that. And, you know, certainly at Rifle, I really cut my teeth there as a higher level climber, um, you know, and just remember doing my first 513 there it was poetic justice and it came off of a really hard year where I had my first shoulder surgery and I just thought I would never climb hard again um and so that climb for me will always be special and will always be a good Colorado memory was getting to do that and proving to myself I could come back from a hard injury and surgery and do something I really want to do and it was a really meaningful day so there's a I have so many good memories and funny memories of things in Colorado, you know, climbing wise. Um, but those are just a few. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about the road trip. Where did you go and how long did you get to go for? Yeah. So we, um, we started in Ontario, Canada. We drove straight from Colorado across the country uh, we wanted to go and start there. There was, I can't even remember the name of those. What is that sport climbing area? It's in Ontario. It's on the water. It's Lion's Head. Lion's Head. Yeah. Lion's Head. Thank you. Uh, so we started there and that place was wild. I couldn't even believe that place. It was so neat. Um, we had a really hard time there. Like we couldn't figure out where anything was. It was a bit, it's very disorienting. It's one of those places where you start on top of a cliff. So you're not looking up at a cliff where you can orient yourself with a guidebook. You're above it, and you have no idea what's below you. There's anchors everywhere, but 
you don't really know where you are if you're not, you know, if you're not familiar with that area. It was so difficult. So we would just start rappelling and climbing things. We had no idea what we climbed, but it was so fun. It was so neat. And then we basically just did this giant circle around North America. And, um, you know, we hit, at the time, I'd say I was probably more of a sport climber than a boulderer. But I certainly loved, I love bouldering. I always have loved it. It's just that I spent more time on a rope in that, at that point. Um, but so it was a pretty good mix. We ended up, um, I think that that trip really kind of solidified for me how much I loved bouldering. Um, but we were trying to walk that balance of, you know, 50, 50, you know, we're going to, we're going to climb roots here. We're going to climb trad there. We're going to boulder there. And, you know, and so we were really just at the whim of, where we were and what we wanted to do. And we didn't really have a schedule or agenda. We were very open-ended. We didn't really know how long we would last on the road. And we ended up lasting 13 months, but, um, and at the end it was very funny. I do remember having a bit of a mental breakdown in Maple Canyon. I was just like, I want a shower and I want a bed and I just want to, I don't, I don't, I don't. And I, like, I couldn't even talk. And like, I was like face down in the dirt and like had tears streaking through the dirt. And Adam was like, I think we're done. <laughs> I think we're done here. But yeah, no, the trip was magical. It was wonderful. And really up until the end, I, you know, it, I, I thought I could keep going, but you know, I couldn't. I think we were mentally done at that point um but yeah we went we went to some really amazing places the new the red um we climbed in new england rumney um we went to the gunks and climbed trad and we you know that lion's head stop which we when else would we ever go there you don't just go there to go there right you're doing so we had all this time and and it was really cool and climbed a lot in the southeast in fact we almost instead of Salt Lake. We really almost moved to Chattanooga. It was top of our list. We loved it. And we climbed in North Carolina, climbed in Boone. And we really kind of thought we might end up in the Southeast. Um, And in the end, we did not. But it was definitely an area that captivated us that we really loved. And we loved the people and we loved the Southern, the Southeastern climber culture was very welcoming. And I mean, I think we had dinner with some random kid and his mom, and then they gave us hot showers and packed us a cooler full of food. And it was just like, wow, this is pretty neat, you know? And we really liked it. But then we decided, nah, maybe not for us. And we kept making our way west and then went to California and Waco and Bishop and the jailhouse and just experienced all these interesting places. And then uh, spent a lot of time in Squamish and came across down into Wyoming, spent a lot of time at Tensleep back in 2005. It was very quiet. In fact, I hadn't returned to Tensleep until very recently, um, this summer actually. It had been 17 years, and I couldn't believe how different it was. It's very crowded. <laughs> um, but that's, that's kind of the loop that we did. And then I, I remember the last couple of months just asking Adam, where, where do we want to live? Where are we going to go? And he pitched Salt Lake and I had never been here. Not once. I had climbed in Joe's Valley. I had climbed in Maple Canyon, but I had never spent a day in Salt Lake City. And I agreed to it. And I thought, well, what, I mean, what, what, we'll be there a year. 
you know, we'll be there a year. Ah, who can't live? You know, we can live any place for you. Yeah, yeah, let's go to Salt Lake. We'll be there a year or two. And here we are 17 years later. And we love Salt Lake. <laughs> we're not leaving. It's a, it would appear we're not leaving. <laughs> so. So you said yes before coming to check it out? Yeah. Because, again, I really thought we'd only be here short term. So, and I'm the type of person I could live anywhere as long as it's not, you know, ah, well, you could live anywhere for a year, right? You could live anywhere. <laughs> yeah. That was my thought process at that time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what happened when you landed in Salt Lake? So, we landed in Salt Lake. And what year was this? So, this was 2005. Okay. Um, we landed in Salt Lake. And we did not have a place to live. Uh, We got here. We just had our Toyota Tacoma with a pretty rudimentary camper shell situation on the top. And our two dogs. And we're like, oh, I don't know. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And we, you know, we didn't have much money left at that point. Neither of us had jobs. We really didn't have a plan. And... um, I remember parking at Black Diamond, and we <laughs> we lived in the parking lot at Black Diamond for like three weeks, uh, and they were so kind, and we showered at Recreation, and Black Diamond gave me a job, and so <laughs> so that was kind of my my landing pad. Um, Adam eventually got a job in biotech, but um, yeah, we really arrived with not a concrete plan or idea or place to go or anything. So it was a little, a little adventurous and willy nilly, but it worked out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Tell me about um, getting the job at Black Diamond. What were you doing? I ended up getting a job. You know, complete shift right from doing the social. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I got, and I was okay with that. I wasn't really anxious to jump into a career again at that point. Like we had just come off the road and we lived this very free lifestyle. And it was, you know, I didn't want to be behind a desk somewhere or I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I had entertained graduate school and I just, you know, kind of needed to find myself. So I got a job in the shop and it was really amazing. I ended up staying there, I think four and a half years. I was there way longer than I ever thought I would be. But it afforded me a lot of flexibility. It afforded me a lot of time to climb. And that's what I wanted at that point. And the funniest part, though, is like, I'm not a skier. (laughs) And I had to fit boots, you know, ski boots for people and, you know, wax skis. And, you know, I, I the one part I loved about it, I got to do a lot of buying for the store, which was really fun. Um... But I also just worked with really fun people and kind of found, a, a you know, a new sense of community. And I loved it. It was a really fun place to be. Um, and it really did. It gave me all this time to, to do what I wanted to do. And that's really what propelled me into bouldering full time because, or, you know, as, as a primary sport, I shouldn't say full time, but like it propelled me into bouldering because I had very weird days. You know, I worked whenever they scheduled me. I didn't have a lot of control over my schedule. And so I ended up having all these random weekdays where, you know, I'm free, but no one else is. And 
you know, well, what am I going to do? Who, what can I do? And so I just started playing in the Canyon and just started really focusing on bouldering. And it was really kind of out of necessity, but it ended up to really be the thing that fueled a, a passion for bouldering and for focusing on bouldering. In fact, it was a lot of people who knew me as a boulderer, uh, for like, we'll say the 10 years that followed, you know, from 2005 to maybe 2015, people just knew me as a boulderer. They didn't even know that I used to sport climb, that I even trad climb, that I went to mountaineering school. <laughs> uh, but, you know, people didn't know that part of me because they just knew that Melissa's always in LCC or Joe's. Like, that's where she is. That's where she's climbing. And that's all she does. And so if I ever put a harness on and people saw me either outside climbing a route or in the gym climbing a route, they'd be like, oh, when is that around your waist? Like as if I didn't know, you know, how to like do anything else. <laughs> so it was very funny. Um, I sort of typecast myself as a boulderer. But, um, but yeah, that's really what kind of sealed my love affair that, you know, that started that in Little Cottonwood Canyon. So tell me about what the climbing community was like in Salt Lake when you moved here in 2005? I really love that question. And I had just been thinking about recently and I, like how I could put my finger on then versus now or what for me is maybe lacking now that was here then. Um, and it was definitely a much smaller <laughs> climbing community. Um, what I really loved about it was that there was a real humility here in the climbing community. Like everyone was so strong. I mean, everyone here was a crusher, but no one talked about it. And I loved that because when I left the front range, um, I mentioned, you know, the Fort Collins community climbing community was pretty low key but that was different across the front range like there was always just so much spray on the front range and people arguing in online forums right that's not even a thing anymore but it was at that time um and I get here and everyone's just low key crushers no matter what discipline and everyone was good at every discipline and that was so crazy to me I mean people would be crushing the boulders, then going out ski mountaineering, then going out and doing like a trad thing. And then, you know, crushing this and that. And, the, you know, it was just like, everybody was so strong and nobody talked about it. It was a very humble scene and very inspiring. Um, and, and it was actually, this is also maybe what kind of forced me a little bit into bouldering. It was hard to find partners because everyone had their own objectives and their own passions and projects. So it was a kind of hard at times to find people to climb with, but it was a really small and dedicated and cool community of climbers. Um, I really was impressed and amazed at the well-roundedness of every athlete here and how good they could be in, across so many disciplines. And also, just the fact that they never talked about what they did. And it, I always joke, like, if a climber sent a 514 in the woods, but nobody was there to hear it, you know, did it really happen? And yes, it did. And it was awesome, <laughs> you know. But it was like you had to pull it out of people to know what they were doing. And people just didn't really talk about it. And, of course, you know, blissfully, there was no social media. It was just a quiet 
community of very inspiring outdoor athletes. Um, and also the city was very gritty. I don't know why. I just have this sort of in my mind, Salt Lake hadn't arrived yet. You know, now it's very different. It's a very cool place. There's, you know, craft breweries on every corner and mixologists and fancy restaurants. And, you know, I mean, it's like a real, real city, but it, 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 to me, did not feel like that when we got here in 2005. It was a very kind of under-the-radar place. Um, and, you know, people were like, why are you moving to Utah? Why are you moving to Salt Lake? Even climbers, well, you know. I mean, I think climbers kind of got it, but for the most part, it was a very under-the-radar community as both a city and as a climbing community. And I loved that about it. It just felt like a place you could come and you could you know, get really strong and meet interesting people, but it wasn't blasted to the masses, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I loved that about it. And part of me remains a little nostalgic for that. And I kind of wish it was still like that. You know, there were two, um, two climbing gyms, there was recreation, and there was the, the OG front, you know, um, and it wasn't fancy. There was nothing fancy. Um, but at the same time, you know, Salt Lake now is really amazing and has come into its own and sort of become its own really cool thing. It's just different. And I, you know, it's hard. I walk around now and I don't know anybody. I walk around the climbing gyms and I don't know anybody. And I don't love that, but also, I mean, part of that's on me. I'm not as much into the climbing community now as I was then. But I sort of feel like a stranger in a strange town now. I'm like, who are all these people? Where did they come from? Oh my gosh, there's like six gyms now. And they have cafes and craft beer when you're done. And, you know, and I love that. I love what some of the gyms are creating now. They are building community in different ways. And I think it's really amazing. But I do kind of long for the the days of quiet, I guess. Quiet grit. (laughs) Uh, who are some of those um, early people that you would go climbing with, or were you mostly just going up the little by yourself? Both. I mean, I climbed a lot with Justin Wood. Um, I actually met Justin before I moved here. I met him in Squamish, and then he was one of the first people I ran into when I... I think he was there the very first day I climbed in Little Cottonwood when I got here. Um, and so that was really fun. And he and I climbed a lot together. Um, Andrew Burr, I climbed a lot with and, um, Shannon Cornelier, who's now, you know, who not now, I mean, he has been a prolific and I think one of the best route setters in the country. Um, Shannon was in the Canyon a lot in those days. Um, there was a guy named Steve Walters. I think he was from the same neck of the woods as Shannon. Um, Sari Francis, uh, she was here in Salt Lake in the mid-2000s. There was, you know, even if I didn't go with people to the canyon, I would inevitably run into them and it would turn into a really fun and motivating kind of session. Um, so I have a lot of good memories of just running into to those kind of people and being really pushed in a good way to try hard and, you know, work on the technique there. I mean, that technique is really weird there (laughs) and watching people who lived here before me and who had that kind of technique, it was so inspiring. It was like, Whoa, I need to move my body like that. You know, look at the, 
technique. Like, I think Justin is a really good example of that. And I think, um, Shannon is a really good example of that. Uh, also, you know, Mike Call, Cynthia Leventhal, um, Steve Downs, like they were always fixtures in the Canyon. Um, yeah, there was just kind of people you would always run into and inevitably just end up having a really fun time with and being schooled in the ways of LCC. <laughs> um, yeah, tell me about some of the LCC climbs that really stand out. There's been a lot. I mean, I, I always joke, like, LCC is a bit of a cruel mistress. I mean, you can climb and try things there, as I did, literally for years, and feel like you don't have a snowball's chance in hell. And then one day, I don't know, the gravity shield drops, the, the humidity drops, the temps are just right, and you just send something that you did not think you could do yet or you know just kind of catch yourself off guard the very first day I climbed in Little Cottonwood was very memorable for me because I had no experience at LCC and I walked up to the gate boulders and just systematically checked off crystal pinch barfly and superfly one after the other. This is my first day in the canyon. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this place. This place is going to be my friend. I'm going to love it. And, yeah, that's not the case. Um, LCC divulges her secrets in a very slow and methodical way. So so that day was a bit of an anomaly. And, you know, I think I ate a lot of humble pie over the next 10 years. But um, certainly, you know, the ones that stand out for me the most... Um, I did shingles sit, which is, you know, I joke now, like, I feel like kids probably do that in their tennis shoes now, but at the time, I don't think very many people were climbing it, certainly not a lot of um, female climbers, and I think I maybe got the second female ascent, it's, you know, hard to know, it was early, you know, mid-2000s, I don't know, but um, it was a really memorable day, and, and Mike Call was there, and Cynthia and Steve were there, and... I had like sort of worked out beta on that problem that I thought might work and Mike wanted to go up and shoot some video of it and I was pretty intimidated because he's Mike and he's awesome and he's a legend and Cynthia and Steve are legends and you know it was just I was like I don't know I feel kind of scared but I ended up doing the problem <laughs> and it was like God, I didn't think I was going to do it I had I was you know, warming up on it and MC was filming and I was really scared. And then I, I split my tip open. I was bleeding everywhere. And I was like, oh, that, there goes that. Like this thing isn't happening. And then I just put my, my shoes back on. I was like, I'm going to give it one more go. And I remember it was like time slowed down. I put my left foot on this tiny little crystal and it didn't pop. And the next thing I know, I'm like, oh shit, I'm doing this thing. <laughs> and so so I, I do all the business, and then I get on the top out, which, again, like, this is my superpower. Let's see how Melissa can screw up a top out. The top out's like five, six, maybe. I mean, V zero, okay? And I'm up there, and I'm like, oh, God, oh, God. And, you know, you're all adrenalized, like, you've just done something you don't think you can do, and I'm, and the camera's rolling, and, and I'm like, oh, this is tall. Ha, ah, this is tall. And I start to panic. And I'm like, 
well, what am I going to do? I can't, like, I just did this business. Like, I'm not doing that again. Like, all right. And I'm like pep talking myself. Like, you got to do this. You just got to do it. And I think it was Cynthia or Steve came up the backside of the boulder on top. And they were so sweet. And they're like, you got it. Like, look, look, just, you're just going to grab that jug and you're going to grab that jug and you're going to grab that jug and you're done. Like, you got this. And I'm like standing there and I'm like a deer in headlights, like frozen. Like, I don't remember how to rock climb. I don't even know how to move my foot. Oh my God, I can't do this. They were all so sweet. And, um, and they basically, you know, they talked me up it. I got to the top and I just sat up there and I was like, ah, you know, I was like shaking. And that video is really, I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it was like back when MC had one of his, you know, online video uh, sites. Uh, and, and, and it was really, it was cool. And he was so gracious. He edited out the entire epic. You know, he just, like, made it look like, oh, look, there's Melissa. She climbs the problem. And then she's on top. Like, he was so kind to completely edit out my freak out of that top out. So very, very memorable. Um, similarly, I did a problem called Bronson. I don't know if many people do Bronson. I know a lot of people do Bronson Arette. I don't know if many people do Bronson. I don't know how popular it is, but it is a famous uh, V9 in the canyon. It feels like V11. I don't know. It's really hard. <laughs> and I was there with my friend and and my husband. And uh, I I stick the move and I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. And you also, there again, like you have to do this top out that is just brutal for me. And I am humping my way up this thing. And I'm just, I'm laughing and I'm crying at the same time. Like this is my, this is my MO. Like I'm laughing and crying because I know I'm being ridiculous and I know that I can do this, but I'm just scraping and scraping and scraping and scraping. And my friend Kat is on the ground and she's just, she's laughing so hard. She's got tears streaming down her face and she's just like trying to talk me through it. And Anyway, that was a very memorable day. Again, not because of the actual problem, but, but just because, like, here you do this difficult thing that doesn't get done very often, or it didn't at that time. Again, I'm sure it does now. But, you know, then, and then you just forget how to rock climb on this easy top out. <laughs> so that was, yeah, a very hilarious and memorable day. Um, and I also, I remember the day I did Copperhead, and that was really amazing because that was a problem that really haunted me for, like, seasons and seasons. And I was like, I don't know. I just, maybe this isn't going to happen. And I had actually torn a tendon in my forearm on it a couple of seasons before, and it was a really hard injury to come back. And I kind of, at that point, was like, I'm never getting on that problem again. Like, that problem is going to mess me up. And... One day, you know, I'd, I'd kind of go there and I'd try it a couple times and then I'd leave. And then one day I was like, you know, I, yeah, I'm going to figure out the top of this. So I figure out the top so that I don't have the Melissa epic. And then I was like, all right, I'm just going to try it. And for whatever reason, that day I just changed the beta that I had been doing for years. You know, sometimes you can't let go of what you think you're supposed to do. You're like, well, this is the way it's going to go. And this is the way I've always practiced it. And this is, and that day I was like on the fly, I changed something and I just, I did it. And it was like a really memorable day because number one, I came back mentally, you know, from, from being hurt on the problem, which I think it's always hard to return to something that really messed you up. 
it's just like a mental thing you have to get over. And then I, I'm like, you know, I may be an older, I'm like an old climber, but I can learn new things. And the lesson I took away was don't be afraid to try something new. You don't just have to do this one thing, this one way. And it was such a metaphor for life. It was like, yeah, that's right. You can change your situation. You can change your mind. You can change the way you look at something. You can change the way you think you have to do something, whether that's in climbing or something else. And what could happen if you give yourself that permission to like unburden what you are tied to. And so that for me was a very memorable problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And were most those all first female ascents? Um, Copperhead was not. Uh, Copperhead came later. Like I think, uh, I think I did that one actually in maybe 2015. So by that point, I think a lot of women had done it. But I do think um, Bronson and Shingles were either, it's so hard to know. And so I never would want to take credit from anyone before. And I know like climbers like Lizzie Asher and Rebecca Berry were here before I was and they were very strong. And I do believe that Lizzie had done Shingles maybe as the first, but it was hard to confirm any of that. It may have been a second and I think Bronson may have been a second. So, but who knows, you know? I don't know. Maybe 10 women had done it before 20 and nobody just talked about it. Because, again, Salt Lake was, like, very humble that way. So it's so hard to know. And there was no, you know, social media or or things. So it was really just sort of like, you know, oh, do you think that was done? Um, I think Ditch Witch Sit was a first female ascent. I mean, that problem, uh, I did that one. Actually, Justin and Andy were there that day. Justin Wood and Andy Burr, and that was actually memorable for a different, <laughs> also because of the tough belt. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, I think Justin encouraged me to try that. He's like, you know, you should do this and you should do it from the sit. It's really cool. It goes, I think it's your style. You should try it. And I don't think, you know, it hasn't been done very much, like, and definitely no, no women. And I was like, all right, cool. So that has a kind of a weird high top out and Andy was like, well, I want to, I want to take pictures. And I'm like, Andy, I don't want pictures. Like I want to spot, like I'm not psyched on this top out. I really just want you to spot me. And so him and Justin were at the bottom. And what I didn't know was that while I was on it, Andy slipped away because he wanted to take pictures. <laughs> and so it was just Justin spotting me and I get to the top, like I do the thing. And I actually, it was a minor epic. It wasn't a classic Melissa epic. I will call it a minor Melissa epic. I was like, oh shit, you know, I'm pumping out, but I I think I got it. And anyway, I finally, I get to the top of that boulder and I look down and it's only Justin and Andy's like in a tree over there taking pictures. And I was like, you jerk. (laughs) But then I was really grateful because now I have pictures of that day. And that problem was amazing. And yeah, that was the sit start to ditch twitch. And it's a really, really cool line. And um, I do think that was an FFA, but you know, you never know. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever climb with some of the other lady, lady crushers? Um, well, Lizzie and Rebecca, I think, were already... Rebecca and I climbed together a little tiny bit, but then she moved away. Lizzie was already gone. I didn't know her well. Um, and then there was... Yeah, I mean, no, not really. I feel like I was mostly climbing either by myself or with 
some of the guys in the climbing community. Um, I do regret that, like, but there wasn't just, there just wasn't as many. I mean, I think people like, um, JC came after, you know, like a few years later, like I kind of already wasn't climbing as much when she came on the scene. And then Amy Cockerham, who was very strong, but she and I didn't really climb together that much because again, it was sort of like she came on a little bit later. And so like in the middle, it was kind of quiet. Uh, Lonnie was here in that time and Lonnie is, and still is an ama- I mean, she is a technician. She's so strong. Um, and if we ran into each other, we were always really excited and we'd climb together, but we didn't like regularly get the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she she was also there, you know, during during that time. And I think she did definitely did Copperhead before I did, because uh, again, I did that one much later because it was like years of mental anguish on that problem. <laughs> um, and it does make me really sad. I know that problem has been chipped um, since, and I think it was maybe repaired as best as it could be. But I find that just so devastating. And it seems like we're having a spate of that over the last couple of years. I know the canyon got hit really hard. I know some things at Joe's Valley have gotten hit really hard. And I think that is a problem that we as a community need to figure out and figure out how to stop. And I, I don't know how we do that. Like, I've like, do we need to sleep in the canyon with a baseball bat and just like take these people out or what? Like, what are we doing? Why are we letting people completely destroy this, these problems? And, and are they climbers? Are they not climbers? I mean, I don't know, but it's, it's devastating and it has consequences and these are historical problems. And, you know, to that point, I worry about, and you know, the gondola and like what happens if they put a gondola in, what happens to the climbing and, um, yeah. So I think we have some real, real, uh, potential threats to our access into these historical problems in our beautiful backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything from Joe's Valley at the time? You had mentioned earlier that you were either at Little in Little Cottonwood Canyon or at, at Joe's Valley. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I uh, loved climbing. I still love climbing in Joe's. It's probably my favorite. It, uh, yeah, it's one of my most favorite styles of climbing. I think uh, I climbed Freak uh, in Joe's Valley at that time. Um. It was probably 2006, maybe. Uh, that's a really, it's a really cool, um, steep boulder problem at New Joe's. And it was really hard, really, really hard. <laughs> and um, I, I remember um, trying to go back and repeat that problem a couple of years later, and I couldn't even touch it. And that's such a hard thing as a climber to return to things that you've done that you're really proud of and realize, oh my God, I can't even, (laughs) I can't even get off the ground on this thing. How did I ever do this? But, you know, I think when you have a lot of time and your body is healthy and you're motivated, you, you know, you feel superhuman and then, you know, life kind of gets in the way, jobs and stress and you don't have as much time to dedicate to your sport and you come back and you're like, okay. But I think that perspective has helped me realize how much I appreciated what, you know, the time that I had to dedicate to climbing at that time and how special it was. Um, I remember climbing Hooters around that time. That was a really beautiful problem. Um, I think it's only like V9. It's not like it's the hardest thing in the world, but it was hard for me. And it was memorable because 
I didn't, uh, I couldn't do it when the like temps were prime. And so I made Adam come with me. It was, it, it was in June and Joe's Valley in June is very hot. And I remember telling him like, I really want to do this problem. And this is now the time I have to do it. And so I made him get up at five o'clock in the morning with me. And I did it at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it was like the sun wasn't really, it was like sort of up, but it was like this very flat light. It was maybe five or five thirty in the morning. I think I had a Red Bull. I didn't even eat any food or, you know, have coffee or anything. I was like, get up, we're going. And I missed that motivation that I had. I don't have that anymore. I would never do that now. I'm way too old. I was <laughs> like, no, I need my sleep. I need my coffee. I need my scrambled eggs. Uh, yeah. But I remember like that was very memorable because it was this sunrise and it was June and it was just, you know, not. Difficult. No one else there. No one was there. It was just us and the deer and rattlesnakes probably. <laughs> um, and I also did my first 11 at that time. And... It was, you know, that was like a whole nother level. You know, when you do your first of something, it kind of, it's, like it shouldn't be about numbers and it's not really, but when you kind of break through something and you do something um, like that, it really is awesome because you're like, oh, well, if I could do this, like what else could I do, you know? And so just sort of motivating sometimes when you can break into a a thing. And I do think that was an FFA. I don't talk about that problem because it is a problem that was given a racist name. And I think that is a real problem and a reckoning that climbers and climbs have that we have got to go and fix and make amends with. It is, you know, for for a long time, there were these, you know, people that were putting up these roots that were giving names, either sexist names or racist names or questionable or just, and I just think we're past that at this point. Like we have got to, we've got to go back through and we've got to fix that because that is not where our sport should be. And it's not where I want our sport to be. And, um, so there, so that's a bit of a tarnish on something that otherwise would have been really special to me. You know, it was a memorable mm-hmm. climb. It was a memorable grade. Um, and yet it has this, you know, awful stain on it for me because of that, because of the first ascensionist. Not me. I was not the first. I was maybe the first female, but I was not the person who put the problem up. Um, so, yeah, I think that is something that we have got to... We have to work on and we have to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the time when you were climbing it, um, did the name bother you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Have there been climbs that you've avoided because of the names? Because you did not want to get on them? No, and maybe it should have, but um, but no. Um, so what are your thoughts on first female ascents since you've had definitely a few <laughs> unsure yeah, all yeah. the details? You know, <laughs> I really have given this some thought and I, for me, you know, at the time for me, they were motivating. Um, but I certainly understand, I think 
a newer way of thinking, like where we are maybe simultaneously we are marking this achievement, but we're also belittling it in a sense. And I get that. Um, for me, they were motivating at the time because there wasn't as many female <laughs> climbers. Um, and, and I can see how maybe we have, you know, reinforced a gap between women and men's achievements in climbing. And I think like now, I think that gap is closing rapidly. Um, I think if they are motivating to someone, then great. And if they're not, and that's something that people don't find important, that's fine too. You know, I think we all have to find what motivates us and whatever that is. I probably, you know, at this point, I probably wouldn't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not pushing the sport at this point in my life, but um, if I were, would I still hold that up? Maybe for myself. I don't know if I would publicly. I don't know. I, I think it's really up to whatever someone themselves finds motivating. But I, I certainly see both sides of the the argument for stuff like that and also the argument against it. Mm-hmm. At the, the time... Um where you're kind of cutting at the cutting edge um do you find it motivating um personally to I did. do it or was it motivating like uh external uh pressure competition type of a motivation oh yeah that's a good question probably a little bit of both I mean at the time I did find it motivating personally but I also was starting to have some like sponsorships and things like that where you feel like you have to prove your worth you know or demonstrate that you're you deserve to be on a team you know I mean I was not a competitive climber in like a competition sense but I did have some sponsorships and you know certainly there is a pressure that you just constantly feel like you have to perform I'm sure I mean and I was nobody like I'm I wasn't there were certainly women so much stronger than me and climbers so much stronger than me. Um, but I, I did feel a little bit of that. Like you had to have something to talk about or you have to like, you know, prove that you, you deserve to be in this space or that you, you know, and I don't know, but yeah, for me though, they were kind of cool in the sense of like, wow, that's, that's neat. You know, (laughs) that's, that's neat. I mean, who doesn't want to be the first to do something or the, you know, or even in the top five of people to do like whatever. But, but, um, yeah, I think there is some internal and external pressures that go with that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about being a sponsored athlete? Well, um, you know, I think back then it was different. I think that companies were, I mean, this is really pre-social media. And I think the culture of climbing and influencer culture has really changed things. You know, things are very different. But at the time, you know, if you were getting out and doing cool stuff and you were personable and you could, you know, I wasn't the hardest climber out there, but I was, you know, doing some cool stuff and I was, you know, friendly and tried to be like a good ambassador for climbing wherever I went. And I had just come off of this road trip. And so, you know, I think that that company saw some value in that. Plus, I worked in the climbing industry. Um, so I think, you know, in the sense of being 
just a more visible member of the community is where my sponsorships probably were rooted in, not in the fact that I was like pushing the envelope of bouldering or climbing at large, but just that I was like a local ambassador out in the community trying hard and hopefully being nice to people. <laughs> like, you know, also, you know, I don't know, but, um, but it was fun. I mean, I, I climbed for a few companies, um, I climbed for 510 for a long time and then, um, and Revolution was here in Salt Lake and there was a few other ones here and there, um, that I don't even know if they're even around yet, but, but yeah, I always appreciated that they saw some value in me and it certainly, you know, who doesn't love like getting free stuff or getting a trip, you know, paid for or something, you know, that you get to do. So it was fun. I don't know that like for, for me now, it, it, it would be, I mean, it's not important at all. I'm not, now I'm like, I have a job. I can pay for my stuff. And like, and then, you know, but, uh, but it was fun at the time. And I met a lot of other athletes that way. Like we would, you know, if you went to the trade show or you, um, traveled somewhere for like a, anything, it was just like, oh, this is nice. You know, you have some other athletes that are doing this alongside and it's fun and everybody's motivated. And yeah. So I think it had its perks and it was, you know, it was fun and I appreciated it, but that's all, you know, long gone. <laughs> now I buy my own stuff. <laughs> it's better that way. Yeah. Uh, so during that time period, you got involved with Hera. Um, what is Hera, first of all? And then also, why? what was that experience like and why is it important to you? I met Sean Patrick, who was the founder of Hera. Um, probably back in, oh my gosh, I would say 2004 maybe. Um, and she was currently, you know, battling ovarian cancer and she had founded this nonprofit and they were putting on climbing events in multiple climbing communities to raise money and awareness for ovarian cancer and, um, I met her, we were actually in Red Rocks, uh, and we met her and she was so lovely and just had this charisma and warmth and just tireless advocacy energy about her, which I really appreciated. And she's like, you know, you should come, come, we're doing this reception tonight. Just come and meet some people and please, you know, just come. Um, and at the time it was really meaningful. My aunt Grace had passed away of ovarian cancer and, I thought, well, this is something I could do and, you know, get back. And so we went to this reception and it was really neat and we met amazing people. And I said, well, you know, I really want to help with this. If you come to Salt Lake, you know, let me know. And then sure enough, they were putting on these Climb for Life events in Salt Lake City. So I started doing that. And also during that time, um, my cousin, Catherine, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and she's still in treatment and it's been almost a decade and it's been very, very challenging for her. And, um, so I just really valued that, what, what the mission of this organization was and, and Sean sadly passed away. Um, and I, I really valued because I feel like for a lot of cancers, um, my mom passed away of pancreatic cancer. So cancer just keeps kind of whirling around my world. And, for a lot of these cancers, there's just not a lot of research. There's not a lot of campaigns. I mean, I think, you know, what what some 
organizations have managed to do on a large scale, I think some of these other more rarer, rarer cancers sort of get left behind and there just isn't as much out there. And so what Sean was doing was really amazing because she was raising a lot of awareness through something she loved, which was climbing. And I just wanted to be a part of that. And I met a lot of people uh, during my time helping with Hera in Salt Lake that I'm still connected with. And so it brought a lot of people into my life. And Also, just, you know, for anyone that's had their life touched by cancer, whether that's you personally, a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend, you know, it's just really meaningful to connect with other people who have experienced that or have, um, you know, a passion for trying to find a cure or more treatments or more awareness. Uh, So my time helping with Hera was very meaningful for me for those personal reasons and, um, I'm I'm sad that, that they're not doing much in Salt Lake anymore, but I know the organization has carried on um, and is still doing really good work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, what was your role for the events? I was actually doing a lot of guiding, <laughs> bouldering guiding. Um, I think I might have got, did I ever take people out top roping? I can't remember. I know I did a lot of bouldering events and coaching um, and movement clinics and, you know, fun things like that. And then, you know, just helping with whatever needed to be helped with. But yeah, and it was really fun because I love teaching people and I love introducing people to climbing. And so to me, that was a really meaningful and important way that I could do that, um, that felt, uh, really special, you know? Mm-hmm. So I loved it. It was really yeah. neat. That's neat. Um, so at what point did you switch from working to Black Diamond and get into the, uh, becoming an animal welfare professional? I, uh, <laughs> during, I was probably around 2008, um, my husband and I started volunteering with No More Homeless Pets in Utah. And I'd always really had a thing for shelter pets. My first dog of my, you know, that we got when I was like in fifth grade, we went to the pound and picked her out and it just made this impression on me. I always felt really strongly about rescuing pets. Um, And I um, was kind of feeling a little adrift at that point. You know, I'm like, oh, how long can I work in the climbing industry, like I probably need to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I was like, well, okay, I could go to grad school or I could do this or that. But I, I started to volunteer and I really loved it. And I was working in the shop with my good friend, John Coulter, and we both had a thing for, and still have a thing for, well, I'll, I will call blocky headed dogs, but we'll say like pit bull terrier type dogs. And we, we saw that, um, you know, they were kind of disproportionately represented in shelters and, um, you know, they were being euthanized in much higher numbers than other types of dogs. And also that we weren't doing a very good job as a community of like engaging the community to help these dogs. And so, um, I was volunteering already doing adoptions and then we started kind of seeing this need at our county shelter and they at the same time were starting to see that need And they had gotten Best Friends Animal Society involved uh, to, you know, hopefully help with some media coverage and events and adoption initiatives and spay and neuter initiatives. And so John and I, this really resonated with us. And we just started volunteering. And before I knew it, like I was volunteering 
full time. Like I had my job at BD and I was climbing a bunch, but like all of a sudden I'm spending, you know, almost a full 40 hour work week as a volunteer trying to help with, you know, taking these dogs to adoption events and like building some awareness around this. And I basically worked my way into a job. It was a bit of a, you know, unexpected thing, but I got the best friends approached me and they said, we love what you're doing. And you know, we, we think you should just do this as your job. <laughs> so, so I was like, awesome. And, um, so that was in 2009. I, I basically made that jump. And from there, you know, it all evolved. Like I, uh, started, I started locally, but then I was able to help on a national level and, and not just blocky headed dogs, but cats and kittens and dogs, shelter pets of every variety. It was basically, um, how can we help shelters and rescues in our country to save more lives and to come up with creative ways to do this because what we're doing isn't working and we need to change things up and we need to also help with grant money and programming and all these different things. And so, you know, over the years at Best Friends, I got to do a lot of really amazing things and I didn't, you know, always have the same job there in nonprofit, you know, there's opportunity to do a lot of different things. And so I flexed a lot of different muscles, you know, learning new skills. And some of it was marketing related. Some of it was programming related. Some of it was fundraising related, but it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. I learned a ton and, um, you know, have been deployed to puppy mill rescues. I have uh, been deployed to disaster zones. I have helped set up emergency sheltering operations, um, for, you know, shelters struggling with disease or hurricanes or this or that. And basically this, you know, became, you know, my, my avocation became my vocation and I got to do a lot of really amazing things and help a lot of pets, um, in, in the meantime. And, uh, I did that for 12 years and it was awesome. And it kind of fit my, social worky brain because I think when you work in nonprofit you just develop a lot of skills and in order to help pets you have to help people and a lot of the reasons why pets end up homeless are rooted in human issues um housing poverty education um you know all these things they are not in a vacuum they are all interrelated and so it really suited me well and I really loved it I will say, you know, during the pandemic, like a lot of people, I just started to feel a little uh, untethered and like I was ready for a change. <laughs> and so I decided to change, you know, change gears. But I still am very much involved, even though I'm not working full time for Best Friends um, and I'm no longer in animal welfare as a as a professional career. I still foster. I still volunteer. I still donate. And uh, I love anything that helps animals. And I think everyone should adopt their next pet. And I think everyone should try fostering (laughs) because I just think, you know, there are so many wonderful animals in our shelters and they all deserve a home and, you know, we can help them. So, yeah. And we can help their people. I'm, you know, always beating that drum because it's not just about the animals and we have to find more ways to help people keep their pets too. So mm-hmm. yeah, I still am very much involved and passionate about that. What are some uh, accomplishments from those 12 years that kind of like really stand out? Um, I really am proud of the fact that, you know, especially for the last, oh, probably six years of my time, um, 
doing that that I got to help a lot of shelters increase their live release rate for the pets in their care. And I did that through, you know, programming initiatives and um, grant making and things like that. Um, So I was really proud of those partnerships and the collaboration that occurred with a lot of shelters. And, you know, to this day, I'm still close with a lot of the shelters that I worked with during those years. And it's really amazing to see them continue to put into practice the things that you know, I helped guide them with. And so that to me is, you know, I hope that a little piece of me lives on and is helping, you know, save more animals and will continue to save more animals down the road. I do think it's been a really tough year for shelters across the country. They are struggling and, you know, the pandemic was a doozy. It was a doozy for shelters and veterinary professionals and people. And we're seeing some ripple effects of that that are threatening to undo a lot of progress that we've made collectively as an animal welfare movement over the last decade. So that's tough, but, um, but I don't think all hope is lost. And I hope that I, you know, I hope that through the work that I did, that I continue to have some mark on that. I also, you know, really proud of some of the, the, um, the cases that I worked on in the field. I did two deployments in Hurricane Harvey And that was probably some of the hardest but most meaningful work that I ever got to do. Um, I'll never forget it. It was amazing. So, yeah. What made it uh, so memorable? I think anyone who's ever been in a disaster, uh, either as a survivor of a natural disaster or as someone who has gone to help, can tell you you just kind of bond through that trauma. And, you know... um, I was in Texas at a, you know, in a very conservative place at a time when the climate was very different. And yet um, I met really amazing people that I probably otherwise would not have made a connection with um, because we were all there with a common goal of helping the people and pets of that community. And so um, I think that made it extra special. And again, like one of those life lessons where you realize we're all just humans on this planet. None of us are getting out of here alive, so we might as well help each other and see our way to what we have in common and how we can help each other instead of be so divided. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a really, I think those kinds of disaster experiences really bring to the forefront of what is very important and transcend some of the day-to-day minutiae that we can fight about online or you know, feel divided over. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't really matter when you're reduced to like, you've lost your house and your pets and your, you know, it's, yeah, I think it really brought a lot of perspective to, um, to my life at that time, certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, for your love of blocky headed dogs, (laughs) have, have most of your pets been, uh, blocky headed dogs or do you (laughs) venture out um I do venture out (laughs) from time to time uh but certainly I have a a unique love affair for the blocky heads um I have had you know multiple pitbull terrier type dogs and you know who knows like I think appearances 
and breed labels are very um, arbitrary when we're talking about shelter dogs. We don't always know what a dog is, but like it's easy to slap a label on a dog and then that is now a stigma for that dog to leave the shelter alive. So I tend to gravitate towards those dogs. Um, I've had multiple now. I have fostered multiple, but I have had some pointy-nosed, small-headed dogs too. (laughs) Uh, I've also fostered a lot of really funny little dogs. Um, I foster a lot of dogs that come out of Texas and, you know, little scared chihuahuas. And, you know, I I certainly don't discriminate. I love dogs of every walk of life. Um, I just happen to really like the ones that are like kind of chunky with a big head that will snuggle me on the couch. And so I still have my love affair with my blocky headed dogs. (laughs) Why do you love dogs so much? I grew up as an only child, so my dogs growing up were always, like, my siblings and my best friends and the ones that, like, I would have, you know, tea parties and play Barbies with. So I think it just was due to imprint, right? It was like that was what was in my house, and I didn't have siblings, so I just immediately, I was, you know, my dad and mom had a Springer Spaniel when I was born, and so that was my first, you know, love affair, and you know, I had her my first five years and then we went to the pound and adopted Sasha. Uh, and so that was, that was my second sibling in life. And so I just always love dogs. I don't know. They bring me comfort and joy. I think they're hilarious and, you know, occasionally dumb. And I, I do like them actually kind of a little dumb. I can't have a smart dog. I like, I'm like kind of, (laughs) I think I'm kind of (laughs) dopey. And what about fostering? Oh, yeah. What, what, how is that relationship and also kind of the knowing that they're not staying there forever? Do you ever get to attach? Yeah. <laughs> How do you I deal do. with that? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, you know, my husband and I have probably, we've lost count, but we'll say it's over 250 foster dogs have now passed through our doors. Um, and every variety, every age, a lot of special needs, a lot of medical dogs, some behavior dogs. Um, It's just something that we feel really strongly about. It really is the biggest need for life-saving of shelter pets. Um, And, you know, it's just been the greatest joy of our life. It's what, what has struck me is that for every dog we've placed, we have, you know, remained in contact with the people who have adopted them and, you know, it'll be 10 years later and we'll get a text from somebody that's like, oh, I just have to tell you how much I love our dog. Thank you for bringing them into our life. And, you know, and then sadly, you know, obviously some will pass. Some have, many have passed at this point. We've been doing it long enough now that that, that is the case. Um, one of my favorites, the former mayor of Salt Lake City adopted from us and her wife texts me probably once a week and is like, oh. Ava is just my little soulmate. I love her so much. And so it's really fun. Like we've made these lifelong connections with the people who have adopted from us and it just makes it worth it. We love it so much. And I just think everyone should try it. That's my soapbox. (laughs) How do the other dogs handle having a temporary 
uh, siblings yeah, that yeah. may take more attention from them. <laughs> they've all, you know, they've done great. When when we first started the process, my, my old dog, Winnie, who passed away years ago, she was not good with other dogs. And so we had to keep her kind of separated. But since her, we've, we've had multiple, you know, pack members of our household. And they've all been great having a rotating character. And I think the more we've done it, the more they're just like used to it. And they're like, oh, okay, there's another one here. Cool. Carry on. You know? (laughs) Um, And yes, we do occasionally get attached. We, you know, of the 250 or more who've passed through our doors, I would say we've probably kept four. So we have a pretty good success rate. (laughs) Uh, But there are some that will weasel their way through the cracks. And they have to be pretty darn special to do that. So, yeah. Uh, Captain Cowpants, our pit bull that passed away a few years ago of cancer, he was a foster failure or success, depending on how you want to look at it. But he went on to change lives in the state of Utah in so many ways. He was a very decorated therapy dog and very well known in the community. And, um, you know, he he was our first, no, he was our second therapy dog that we trained. Our first one was our... Uh, first foster fail honey <laughs> she she was a therapy dog as well and then captain and um now tuggy tugboat is our third uh registered therapy dog and he volunteers in the third district court he helps kids in court and um it's you know really wonderful to be able to say like these dogs are rescue dogs and you know we can shatter that myth that rescue dogs are somehow damaged or less than like these are amazing dogs they've gone on to do amazing things and you know uh we become a team in that way and it's a really wonderful experience so um you know we we've just loved fostering and the really really special ones stay <laughs> there's been some where i'm like oh my god please get adopted i can't have you here for another day and i you know we've had some really tough ones where i'm like no one is going to adopt this dog and there will always be someone that comes for that dog and then it's like a perfect match and it's so funny because you're like okay you know my mom had a saying there's an ass for every seat and i have seen that it's like wow this dog found their person and they are perfect together so fostering has really been a gift for us that keeps on giving and we love it mm-hmm. tell me about getting into doing therapy dog time like how does that oh how did you first get involved with doing the therapy dog side of things yeah i mean i remember coming across therapy dogs, you know, at various points in my life and thinking that that's really cool and wouldn't it be awesome to have a dog that could do that. And when we adopted our our pit bull, Honey, I was like, oh my gosh, she's such a cartoon character. She loves everyone. Like, she would be so good at it. And she was. She was really good. She did it for a few years up at the University of Utah um, at the program formerly known as Uni, which has a new name now, but it's the Mental Health Hospital. And she started working with kids up there that were in um, mental health treatment. And she was really good at it. But she was also really funny because if you stopped petting her, she would like, we said she sang opera. Like she would start to kind of howl and vocalize and they're really not supposed to do that. Um, But I I just was like, we got her and I just felt like she had the, the knack for it. And so I went down the road and I was so glad I did. And we have some really good memories with her up there. And then we fostered Captain and he was born to do that work and did it very well for uh, seven years before he passed away. Um, But yeah, I I loved it. I, I, I think when you have a dog that is 
well-balanced and not easily startled and pretty comfortable with weird stuff uh, and likes everybody. Uh, you know, it's definitely, and if you like people, I mean, you kind of have to like people, right? Because you're going to visit people. Uh, so you need all these sort of things to synergistically come together. You know, not every dog can do it. Not every handler can do it. Not every dog, even if you think they can do it, will pass the test. So it's a big commitment. That was the thing that I learned, you know, as I started the process that I wouldn't necessarily have realized had I not gone through it. So it's a lot of work and it's a big commitment, but it's awesome. Yeah. And um, now you have Tuggy, the yeah. third therapy dog. And, yeah. And he's mostly working at the... Yeah, so he's in the third district courthouse. Uh, he was at University of Utah for several years. And my uh, a friend of mine who is also involved in this work started a program through the third district court. Like, it took a lot of work for her to build that program and a lot of things had to happen with the judges and the, you know, the, all the people involved, like, you know, you can imagine it's, it's, there's a lot of, um, things logistically and legally that have to happen for a dog to be able to visit. Um, but she built that program, uh, several years ago and asked if we wanted to participate and we absolutely jumped at it. Um, the pandemic was hard. We, you know, a lot of places we couldn't visit. And so we've been a little bit on hiatus, but, Tomorrow we'll be doing a child adoption ceremony with one of our judges that requests us all the time, and she's amazing, and she loves Tuggy, and we have done numerous um, child and family services type hearings. For me, it's sort of another one of those experiences that brings me back full circle as a social worker, Um, and so to be able to do it now with a dog and as a volunteer in this capacity is really, really fun, and um, you know, we'll, we'll sit at the table with the kids while they're testifying or whether, you know, it, it's a lot of different things. We've done some abuse trials, which are very difficult. We've done, um, placement hearings. We've done reunification. We, you know, a lot of different aspects we, we will get invited to be a part of. And it's really, if the judge thinks that we bring, would maybe bring value or stress relief for the kiddo. Um, and my role is really just to support Tuggy. Like, I don't say really anything. It's, you know, I have to be careful not to say anything. It's not my place, right? I'm just there as as the other half of this team. And he's doing all the hard work, right? Uh, but, yeah, it's been it's been really amazing. And I love that the, the, thir- the third district court has embraced this program so much. They love it. And it's really cool. Uh, can non-kids... <laughs> request the, their therapy uh, I, I think so I mean I, I think so we have done we have been requested from time to time in some other hearings um, and I know there are other teams that do for example um, the drug court program which is really interesting we started off doing juvenile drug court but there are I believe a couple of teams that do the adult drug court and those are for people that are committed you know it's a strict program they have to meet certain requirements but yes there are adults who benefit from the therapy dogs and um yeah it's it's awesome I'm surprised not every court has. <laughs> I know, therapy. I know. I think more and more will. And, you know, we've tried to demonstrate the success of the program. And I think there are other district courts now in Utah because, who, because of this program, have now requested it. So I think it's gaining more traction for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so neat. Um, 
who have been some of your mentors, either professionally or in the climbing um, sphere, and what do you admire about them? Oh, yeah. Well, I want to give love to, I, I talked a lot about Melissa Capoza as my first climbing partner, but there are two other women in my life who I have climbed with quite a bit. Um, not, uh, yeah, I, I love, so I remember growing up, not growing up, but when I started climbing, I remember seeing a poster of Lisa Hathaway at my climbing gym, and I was like, man, that's so cool, like, she's you know, she's a badass. And then I get to Utah and I actually meet her and she's just this amazing person who I fell in love with right away. So Lisa has been one of my main mentors and partners here in Utah. And what I love about Lisa is I call her the unofficial mayor of Moab and she knows everybody in the climbing scene across the country. And she hosts radio shows and musical programs. And she's just this wonderful, delightful, slightly eccentric old climber who I love and we always joke we have Satan beta we always put our heel hooks above our heads and do the splits and you know she grew up as a figure skater and I of course I was a dancer and a gymnast so we always do things very awkwardly and weird um but she's been probably one of my biggest inspirations um in climbing and then um my other just I just got a give credit where credit's due. One of my very best friends, Lindsay Gash, she is one of the strongest climbers I've ever known and so under the radar. She, I met her for the first time in the late nineties at the Climbers Fest. And I remember looking at her and she just had this like look of steel. And then she just like scampers up something. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty new to the sport at that point. I'm like, damn. (laughs) And, uh, No, I didn't run into her again for many years until I moved, I think, to Salt Lake. And then um, I knew her husband. And so we started hanging out. And she's just such an undercover crusher and so inspiring to me and has a head of steel. Like the kind of climber that you're like, I wish I could be that solid mentally. I mean, she will run something out and without, you know, her technique will stay flawless, her you won't even know she's struggling, you know, she'll just, she just goes to this place and she's just steely. And I love that about her. Um, she is definitely one of my favorite climbers and inspirations. Yeah. So a question I've been asking everyone, um, is how are you balancing your, your work, all of this volunteer work? And then plus you have activities that you like to do climbing and mountain biking and Etc. And then also you have you have a husband and family <laughs> you want to spend time with and friends. Yeah, you know I feel sometimes like I'm barely balancing things. I obviously I am a now I am a multi sport athlete. I did not used to be for the longest time. I was a one trick pony with climbing, um, but I've had a lot of really difficult what I would say devastating injuries over the last several years that have kind of forced me into some new directions. Um, you know, I, I love to mountain bike. Um, it's something I never thought I would get into, but it actually has a little bit of, um, the appeal to me that bouldering has in the sense that I like cruxy kind of bike riding and you can, project little sections. Um, we call it, you know, sessioning something. 
Um, it hurts a lot more when you fall biking though, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, so I've learned that I need balance in my life. I, I used to be envious of people that could, you know, work remotely or, you know, let's be honest, like people that don't seem to have to work at all. And I'm like, I'm not that person. Uh, I do like having other things in my life. I like being able to sleep in my own bed or being able to go volunteer, you know, doing the therapy dog thing or with an animal thing. I like spending time with my husband doing other things and, you know, Salt Lake has a lot to offer. So I think when I feel a little bummed that I can't dedicate more time to this or that, I I also have to remind myself that I am a multifaceted person and I find value in a lot of different things. So I think that helps me keep more perspective about it. And even if I feel like I'm not doing a very good job of balancing things, like I am balancing a lot. Um, And, you know, also now, you know, I'm a full-time realtor and that takes a lot of time and I'm I'm busy with that quite a bit. So um, yeah, I, I struggle to be perfect at balancing things. And sometimes I wish I didn't have to balance so many things, but at the end of the day, I think it keeps life interesting and I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) What's the biggest challenge you see facing the climbing community? And that can just be specifically be here or just kind of in general. We've talked about a few. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing unprecedented uh, numbers of climbers making their way, especially from the gym to the outdoors. And when I came up, you know, you had outdoor mentors. Climbing gyms were not what they are now. And so you did cut your teeth more outside and you had someone usually more older and experienced guiding you on what the ethics were or, you know, how to take care of areas. And so I think that we really have a little bit of a, a challenge ahead that I know a lot of organizations are working on, um, that are going to hopefully help us address some of these issues, but we're, you know, crowds and trash and not respecting, um, these areas or, you know, I think it often feels really noisy and just busy. And that's really a shift I have felt in the last probably five to seven years. Um, I, I say, you know, I think the social media effect really can't be understated. I think, um, I think that there's a lot of riskier behavior being encouraged or just sometimes feeling like a little bit that things aren't, I don't know, things feel a little inauthentic all the time or staged and um I don't know but there's there's a flip side to that and I would say the positive to that is that now that we have these uh social media channels we're seeing a lot more diversity in the sport people of different abilities um, more representation with uh, people of color more just more accessibility to the outdoors that I think uh, social media has shined a light on, which I think is wonderful and necessary. So I think that the social media thing is a little bit of a double-edged sword, but at the end of the day, we really have to continue to try to work on making sure that we are respecting these areas and the people who came before and the cultures that are on these lands and the way that we behave ourselves when we're out climbing, especially with our increasing numbers. So I see those as some big challenges that we have to continue with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What impact do you hope to have on the Salt Lake community? Well, I mean, like I said, I, I'm really nobody and I'm not certainly never was like the top top of the game or anything like that. But I do hope that people will see me as somebody that was, um, 
dedicated to being a good steward here, to being welcoming, to being kind, and being also a part of not just the climbing community, but just the community at large. Um, and that I've somehow managed to like be able to do that while I have a career and other obligations. I just hope that people realize that you can balance these things and you can be a nice person and you can give back. And I hope people will remember me as someone like, yeah, she climbed pretty good and she did some other cool stuff and she saved a lot of dogs and she was nice and fun. And so I hope that's, I hope that's my impact. You know, that's it. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't covered already? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about seeing our, our spaces become more inclusive and I love that. And I think that's something we have to continue to foster and making outdoor, um, adventures and climbing and biking and all of these things more accessible for people, um, people of color, people with different abilities, people who are of a different economic level who might not even know these things exist for them. And so I want to continue to see all of us as an outdoor community continue to foster things like that and support organizations that um, have that as a mission and continue to lift up those voices. I think it's really important and it is what makes our climbing community and our outdoor community what it is. Um, You know, and then I guess, you know, we didn't talk about injuries and, and things like that, but I, I guess I want people to also know you can come back after things and it may not be what you have been doing and it may be different, but we persevere as, as athletes and you have to forge new relationships with something you love when, um, it's not what it used to be. And that's something I've been kind of mentally grappling with over the last few years, just because things have my body has changed significantly in the last few years with regard to injuries and surgeries and, um, you know, just general degradation of my body. Um, I have had to form a new relationship with climbing, but that's what makes climbing amazing is it's always going to be there. And, you know, if we take, if we take care of our, um, lands and we steward our lands, it will always be there in some form. And, you can form a new relationship with it, even if it's different than the one that you used to know. Um, we're fortunate. We have all of this here in our backyard in Salt Lake, and we have amazing people here. And we should continue to love and appreciate and support each other and support our love of the outdoors here. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B utah.edu. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, 
and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm-hmm.